Good afternoon, everybody. It is 12 o'clock on Wednesday, and that means it is Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. Uh, thank you all for being here. We have a great show coming up. And, uh, you know, every week it is my honor to bring you topics of note in higher education, current trends, and new information to ponder. Uh, be sure to subscribe to my newsletter, What's Up in the Academy, on Substack. Uh, you will receive information on how to do that very soon uh, up here in the show. So you will have that uh, so you can uh, subscribe. It is the number one substack in higher education. Uh, so very excited about that. Uh, we also, every week before we start the show uh, and get into the meat of the conversation, we do share some news of the day. So coming to us from Higher Education Dive, the University of Arizona Global Campus has lost their access to GI Bill benefits. Uh, the University of Arizona Global Campus told students on Friday it has temporarily lost access to education benefits covered by the GI Bill, which could spell enrollment troubles if it doesn't soon regain approval. The loss of military education benefits could deal a brushing, uh, bruising blow to the online college where nearly 10% of the institution's roughly 28,000 students receive financial aid from Veterans Affairs, according to a snapshot of the university's student demographics shared in February. The university draws a sizable share of its revenue from VA benefits, with 3,422 of the university's students receiving a total of $16.5 million from the GI Bill uh, in fiscal 2020. So let's keep an eye on that story. Uh, also coming to us from inside higher ed education, VMI alumni take aim at the college's DEI efforts. Diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts are once again under attack at Virginia Military Institute. The latest skirmish comes months after the military college's president publicly rebuked an alumnus for claiming in an interview that VMI's DEI efforts were in fact an effort to establish critical race theory on campus. VMI has denied that critical race theory is part of its curriculum. Unconvinced, outspoken alumni are now circulating a petition on Facebook asking Virginia's into the matter. Uh, we should keep an eye on that. And um, I have put an out, I've uh, reached out to VMI to see if we can get their DEI staff uh, on the show in the future. Uh, fraudulent student applications targeted at Salt Lake Community College. Uh, Salt Lake Community College received fraudulent applications for the spring 2022 semester. This comes to us from Higher Education Dive, which leaders say were likely attempts to steal federal Pell Grant and COVID-19 relief funding. No money, however, was released because of the fake applications. Uh, so we have that news. And then finally, what just came in just under an hour ago, Secretary Miguel Gar Cardona from the U.S. Department of uh, Education announced that an extension of the pause on student loan repayment interest and collections has been made through August 31st, 2022. A detailed release has come out from the Department of Education. This extension also includes a quote-unquote fresh start eliminating the impact of delinquency and default on all borrowers. Uh, we have seen a lot of news about uh, it, the uh, student loan situation, and uh, we 
uh, are going to continue to monitor that. Uh, so today's topic, I'm really excited uh, to have today uh, Thriving in Unfamiliar Places with our guest, Dr. Sidney Freeman, Jr. from the University of Idaho. Uh, Dr. Freeman is a groundbreaker. He is a professor in the Department of Leadership Counseling and the University at the University of Idaho in Moscow, Idaho. The first African-American male to be promoted to full professor in the university's history. Being a first on a predominantly white university campus is one thing, but having moved to Idaho after having spent a good chunk of his career at historically black colleges and universities, well, that's something altogether something else. Uh, we are going to be probing into his essay, Thriving in Unfamiliar Places, uh, where we dig into his thesis that in order to thrive and be your completely authentic self, it is essential to follow three keys, knowing who you are, knowing, knowing whose you are, and knowing who you want to become. Uh, if you are new to Fireside, I invite you to uh, share this show with the world. Um, what you will do there is you will go to the bottom left-hand corner of your uh, phone or your device, and you will see a opportunity to broadcast to the world. When you click on that, it gives you a chance to copy and paste uh, the link of the show into your Twitter, into your your LinkedIn into whatever social media platform you have. Um, if you are also uh, just getting acclimated to Fireside, uh, there are ways to react. There are ways to applaud. You can do that uh, through the bottom right-hand corner of your phone, uh, and you will see a react button. And right there, you can uh, you can clap or you can ask uh, to, you can give a thumbs up. You can do all kinds of things there, um, and uh, you can also request to come on up at some point and ask Dr. Freeman a question um, and be part of the show. Um, so as a full introduction to our guest, uh, Dr. Freeman is an educational theorist, social scientist, and nationally recognized former academic administrator with experiences in various aspects of academic and student affairs. He is a prolific author with nearly 100 articles to his credit and has lectured and presented at institutions such as Harvard University, Oxford University in the United Kingdom, Jerusalem College of Technology in Israel, and RMIT University in Vietnam, Saigon. He has renamed, he has named, uh, he, excuse me, he was named the 2020 recipient of Auburn University's College of Education Outstanding Alumni Award and recently honored as one of the accomplished under 40 award recipients for 2020 by the Idaho Business Review. In 2021, Dr. Freeman gave and received the Barbara Townsend Lecture and Award from the Association for the Study of Higher Education. And in 2022, he was invited to serve as visiting scholar in the office of the provost at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. He is the owner and president of Dr. Freeman LLC, educational consulting and executive director of the Liberation Movement, TLM, which provides services to individuals who have been liberated or seek to be liberated spiritually, socially, and psycho psychologically through educational initiatives. So thank you, Dr. Freeman. I'm going to invite you to speak once again and invite you back up onto the stage and make sure you are all good to go. So Dr. Freeman, how are you today? 
I'm wonderful. It's great to be on this platform with you. Um, it's wonderful to have you here, and thank you so much. So um, I want to frame what you brought uh to, I want to frame you. I want to frame what brought you to the work in higher education. Uh, tell me what brought you to academia um, and what that journey looked like for you, Dr. Freeman. When did you know that this was your calling? Well, I went, I attended Oakwood University uh, at the time as Oakwood College in Huntsville, Alabama, uh, a historically black college. And I was an interdisciplinary studies major, but I really majored in student activism. And during that, during those uh, four years, uh, I was always like on student government, uh, helping to create uh, protests and things like that. And in my senior year, the president of the university invited me to sit in on a board of trustees meeting. Now, because it's a private institution, uh, it's generally closed. Mm -hmm. And so this was kind of an amazing opportunity because if you weren't the president of the student government, essentially that was the only student that was invited to the meeting. But I was invited to the meeting and I saw the way in which uh, President Delbert Baker at the time, the way in which he led and and pre presented his vision for the institution. And, and while watching that, I knew I wanted to be a college or university president. Mm -hmm. And from there, someone told me that you could get a degree in higher education administration. Isn't it amazing? <laughs> I, I, I said, could you get, you can get a degree in students, like college students, of, to a, of course, because I'm a, a student activist at the time, that really you know, kind of got me going. So I looked looked up uh, what schools I could attend uh, in the state. You know, the big schools are University of Alabama, and then there was Auburn. Auburn accepted me. And of course, uh, Charles Barkley, uh, it's his alma mater, and I'm from the Philadelphia area. So I said, that's my school. I earned my master's and doctorate in higher education administration. And so that really got me going. My my idea was that I was going to get a uh, get my master's and doctorate in higher ed, uh, become a professor or an administrator and work my way up to becoming a president. Great. Um, I love that. I love the fact that your your journey took a turn as soon as you were just invited to a meeting. Right. Yeah. And I, I enjoy that because so many opportunities there in terms of engaging our students really are about something as uh, seemingly small as a meeting, but as big as what the meeting means. And so I appreciate that very much. Uh, and, you know, it's really something where we can really find an opportunity to do that in our day to day um, and bring students to a different level. So that's great. Um, I want to I want to spend a bit of time hearing from you about your experience as a first. Okay? Mm -hmm. um, as I indicated in the introduction to the show, you are the first African-American male promoted to the rank of full professor at the University of Idaho. Uh, you know, what is well, first of all, define what being a first means to you. Being a first means that I have a responsibility to not be the only. Being the first just means 
that uh, I'm going to have to take some of the bumps and bruises of being the first. But my goal is to ensure that uh, that we bust the, the door wide open so that many more can come come after me. And so, you know, this significance of being the first and knocking that door down, um, you know, you said earlier that, that it's not about being the only. Um, is that kind of when you actually had this opportunity and this uh, space provided to you where you earned this this space, what did that feel like to you? It felt uh, it was it was interesting because uh, it was in in the midst of COVID, right? So I'm locked in the house, so it's a different kind of it was a different kind of feeling, right? So uh, we weren't even really coming on campus, and so my chair came in with a, with her mask, came to uh, my apartment door with some with with balloons and a, and a major sign, right? That uh, that kind of highlighted it. So I still haven't had a full professor party or anything like that. And so I still have some friends that are, are saying we still got to make that happen. Uh, but I think, I, I think I learned the impact of that it would have on people and that it went viral at least that, uh, that I know of six times. Wow. So what I mean by viral means that it, in one sharing, it uh, garnered over fifty thousand impressions, or something like that, right? Okay. Yeah. Uh, so this is worldwide, right? right. Uh, so, so it was really important. When when you when this went out there, and people who were strangers, they found you, they heard about this. Um, when people see this, what was one of the most common questions? Because I know that I look at this and go, "Well, how did?" Dr. Freeman find his way to Idaho. Mm -hmm. Okay. Was that one of the things or, or was it, how did you find your way here from, you know, what, what was your, what was your journey? What, what did people want to know about uh, the significance of uh, how you found your way to this role? Yeah. So there's one, you know, one is how, how did you get to Idaho Two. Why did it take why why did it take so long? So there was a critique on the institution, mm -hmm. uh, right? And then what was the process, right? So people wanted to know. So I think the significance was not only that I was the first. I think the other part of the significance was the amount of time that I was able to not navigate through that. So I have it down to the month. So it's, it took me five years and seven months to earn that. Uh, to put that in context, it generally takes individuals 10 to 12 years to earn the rank of full professor. And uh, I was able to do it in that, that short uh, time frame. The average individual in my, in my field, uh, well, in higher education writ large, um, it, they are around, when they earn full professor, they are in their 50s. I earned it. I earned it at 36. So it's almost 15 years before, 15 years or more before. So there was a lot of different things going on. And so um, understanding the weight and responsibility of that uh, was, uh, I was conscious of that. So it was not something that just happened. It was something that I was conscious of 
and strove for. Right. And I, you know, I want to remind people that um, back on February 9th, and you can see this in my past episodes, we had a great episode about racially minoritized faculty and the, and the, um, the tenure process. And so your point about why did it take so long and people asking that question, we delved into that a bit. And so, um, and what does a tenure review look like uh, in, in the racially minoritized faculty approach where, you know, what, what counts as a, uh, top tier publishing, what counts and, and that sort of thing. So it was a great conversation. So if you're, if you're new to Fireside and you haven't listened to my shows before, please go back and check that out. Um, and uh, if you subscribe to my, my Substack, I'll make sure I reference that uh, in this week's Substack when I push out the, the replay of today's conversation with Dr. Freeman, because I think uh, it actually plays off each other well. Um, and so um you know, your work at Idaho has also grabbed some uh, groundbreaking elements in terms of some of this, the uh, development of something called this Black Research Lab. Can you tell the audience what the Black Research Lab is and what this effort uh, has done for the community at this predominantly white institution in Idaho? Yes. Yeah, so I'm going to connect it to the, 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 previous, the previous comments and, and question. And so when I arrived at the University of Idaho, prior to my arrival, I wrote an article in the Chronicle about uh, my preparation for coming to, uh, to the university. And I was very clear that I understood that I was an African-American male coming there from the, from the East Coast. Uh, and having served at at um, historically black colleges and universities and attending black schools prior to that. And so uh, that I was doing the work to prepare for that, to understand some of the challenges that I may face and things like that. And so one of the things I also did was I, I reached out to everyone that I perceived identified as African-American or black on campus, which on a, a campus like Idaho is, is a small number. It may be 10 that may be on the How West. How did you do that? How did you find uh, that? I mean, that's visible, like visible, okay. Okay. visible uh, diversity. And then you look at their scholarship. So you go to every department and you just okay. look, right? You went on the uh, website and, and you just went through, right? Went through and uh, and had several conversations with faculty that were amenable to a conversation about uh, was it like being African-American at the institution and things like that. I always want to put myself within context of the place, right? Mm -hmm. And then it was uh, several years, uh, uh, after several years being on campus, I, I, I really wanted to know where I was in where I was in the history of the institution, right? Because there have been so few. What is my responsibility and role given given where I am? And so uh, I am, so I had started a small project on the side with some graduate students related to the history of blacks within the community and at the University of Idaho. And then a couple years ago, I would say in July, I would say in July of 2020, right after uh, the the extrajudicial murder of George Floyd, 
I uh, I was contacted by the president because I had written an article that essentially said, what are 10 things that show that black people matter on predominantly white institutional campuses, right? And so when I came to the president, I sat down with him and our chief diversity officer, and I had the three S's, which was space, staff, and scholarships. So space that we needed to have a a space, uh, a black cultural center space on campus. Second, we needed to have someone that staffed it and third scholarships. And he said, we can go with that. You know, a 10, if I came within with all 10, he would say, that's a little, that's, that's a lot. But we came in with the, we came in with the three. Mm-hmm. And uh, with that, he also said, why don't we fund your work around black history? I was telling him I had a smaller project. So they they gave me ten thousand dollars to to fund a small project, hire some students that had been working with me, and so we flipped that flipped those dollars into a lab, and so that lab allowed us to do more research. We partnered with the history department, and we partnered with with the library archives department to launch to launch this uh, Black History Research Lab. And it's done phenomenal uh, in less than a year. We've we've uh, we have a fully engaged, uh, two fully engaged websites. One one that archives all this information from eighteen from eighteen, uh, I would say eighteen eighty eighteen eighty nine to to now. We have a graphic that goes across that whole spectrum of time and and digitize information where you can access that information. And then you also have uh, my lab, my lab where we have some beginning information about what's happening here at the university as it relates to uh, identifying the history on campus. And we will put uh, the uh, website for that up in the in the fortune cookie that's scrolling across <laughs> the middle of your uh, of your screen right now. But it is uidaho.edu uh, forward slash ed forward slash about forward slash spaces forward slash bhri. Um, and so uh, I will put that up so people can click on that. It'll also be in the replay information, uh, which will be great. And, and what I want to say about that, and it is an impressive website. Uh, it is something, you know, when I was looking to book Dr. Freeman, I was, I saw this first, I saw this first. Um, there was a, a, a splash on LinkedIn about it. One of our mutual people that we know, um, probably commented on it or something like that. That's how social media works. Right. And so it pops it up in your space and, you know, that's how I end up buying shoes sometimes. Like it's not about, you know, I wasn't looking to buy shoes, but somebody did and shared it. And I went, I like those shoes. Um, But, you know, it's also a way for us to find one another and find uh, what people are doing in terms of great and good work. And something about this kind of screamed at me about this idea of creating a great and good space. And great and good spaces are lacking on our campuses in terms of especially our PWIs where students uh, in minoritized groups don't have space, don't have uh, an opportunity to connect. And, you know, the more and more I kind of delved into your history and what you were all about, um, this idea of being a first, 
that you know as a first that you don't want to be the last, you don't want to be the only, um, you've created a space that kind of embraces that idea of this is, this is not just about one person. This is about a full community. It's about a history. It is about a future. And how do you position uh, the Black community at Idaho to have a space that not only reflects what they came from, but what where they're going? Um, you know, what do you think that that has done in terms of your quest to be not the only? Do you think that the this is actually bigger than your legacy as a faculty member, or do you think hand in hand they actually uh, actually go well together? I think they go well together, but I think I understand uh, the broader the broader picture, and and so uh, context for for our audience here, uh, we are about one percent of the population on campus, whether it's faculty, staff, or students, right? And so we're a small percentage of, of the, the overall population of, of the campus. However, during my time at the, at the institution, I've been blessed to lead on uh, multiple initiatives. So during my, during my time, uh, it's not, not just been the Black History Research Lab. It's been helping to co-found the Africana Studies academic program. It's uh, reestablishing the Black and African American Cultural Center, which had been dormant for close to fifty years. Uh, we got that going and hired. We we ended up hiring that person to uh, to step into that role. And so the grand opening was just two weeks ago. And so really excited about that. We have in Idaho, even though they're uh, attacking attacking this the notion of teaching critical race theory in the midst of that, we have a Black Lives Matter series in which uh, I helped to lead. Um, and so we have a Black Faculty and Staff Association that's in place. And so there's several other other things that uh, come to, that uh, that um, that I've helped to lead. But the idea is that we create a ecosystem mm. in which in which black people feel supported, whether they're students, faculty, staff or administrators, if they're black, that they feel supported, that there's this synergy between uh, all these groups. So instead of having the the national uh, society of black engineers be one group and and having the black student loss law organization be another group what they do is is while they have different missions that we we interact with one another and see kind of the broader agenda and so uh, what I'm looking to looking to do is uh, soon and this is uh, it's in its in its developmental stage is to create is to build on the lab and create a broader center that helps to facilitate what I call black thriving and flourishing. I want to I want black people to thrive on predominantly white campuses, although I have a bias toward historically black colleges and universities because I am a product of one. Uh, I understand just given given the way that uh, resources are allocated in this country because of white supremacy, uh, black institutions, uh, I mean, black students and uh, professionals will be at predominantly white institutions. So if they are there, how can we find ways in which it's soul enriching rather than soul sucking? 
Well, I, and I love that you are looking at, uh, you're informed by your own uh, lived experience. You had a formative experience at uh, your undergraduate uh, institution. You have worked within uh, the historically black college and university environment. It is part of, it is, it is probably part of your DNA at this point. And it allows for you to draw on that, right? And that you say, okay, if I'm at a PWI, I'm going to go full in. I am going to go full in and make sure that whatever I'm bringing to this institution and to the, to the folks here uh, who are part of this ecosystem that I'm trying to build, um, are going to get the most value um, out of their experience. Um, and I really love what you're saying about connecting these, you know, these various, uh, every campus has this, right? You have got your, uh, you know, your black student center at the law school or your black undergraduate uh, engineering organization, whatever it may be. And, no, you know, it happens where they don't always talk to each other. <laughs> That's not, and you, you know, there's a power in connective tissue, right? There's a, there's a power there that it's, hold on a second. We're all feeling this, or we're all trying to do something in this area. Well, why don't we try it together? We can actually maybe make our voices heard higher or, you know, I hate to say it. Sometimes it's about money and it's okay. Well, you've got this amount, you've got this amount when we're together, we actually got this amount and we can maybe do more with it. So um, I, it's a good thing. You've got that student affairs background. You've got that get it done kind of thing going on, Dr. Freeman, as long as well as with your scholarship, which is amazing. If, um, if I could, if I could just jump in really quick, one of the things that we had to navigate is that uh, we had a great pipeline for uh, students from the diaspora. What I mean by that is we had students that uh, would attend the institution, uh, black students that would attend this institution that were from the continent of Africa or mm -hmm. from the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. However, we there was not a particular charge to go after what I would call the American descendants of slaves, right? Uh, and so African-American, African-Americans. And so the African-American population often came from, uh, uh, came from playing sports, right? And so there was then a tension between you have the African students that were brought here to be in, you know, they're in the engineering program or they're in the law program. And then they're feeling like there's a tension there. And so we had to break some of that down. Right. And so, listen, listen, we're, we're in this, we're in this together. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's, I mean, that's ongoing. That's amongst even faculty and faculty and staff, right. right. Where you have those faculty that come from the Caribbean, I'm African-American, Right. And so I, you know, it's informing them of the history of this country and how how this may how America may look like, a you know, the land of opportunity for for them. But for me, it, I think of rape and plunder and all of those things that have impacted uh, my family. And so those are the kinds of things, uh, riching conversations that are important to have. So I don't want to give a kumbaya kind of uh, and kumbaya and, and not in a in a negative way, but just saying that it's not in not this. all roses. Just all roses. But we're still working through some of those me the messiness. But that was that's important to do when uh, when dealing with some of these things. You know, when these things happen, when you're actually trying to build something, building gets messy. You know, if you're talking about a house 
it doesn't go up and have no dust. If it does, it doesn't go up and have no dirt. Um, it, it's not as, it's not instantaneous. And so when you're building something, it can get a little messy, but conflict and mess actually create longer standing, better things down the road. So, um, I appreciate your honesty there. Um, before we get into your essay, Thriving in Unfamiliar Places, I just want to remind folks that this is Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. I am Dr. Laura DeVoe, and uh, we are here every week on Fireside. It is basically professional development in your earbuds. And so for those of us in higher education, always looking for ways to expand our viewpoints and understanding what's going on out there. Next week uh, is April 13th, and that is the Think Tank. Every month we have uh, a wonderful panel that that comes on in, and I throw uh, current issues at them. And so next week we are joined by our Think Tank. Um, following that, we have a few episodes that we're working on. Uh, one in particular is uh, on our theme of innovation in higher education. This is our first um uh, uh, vendor, so to speak, that we're bringing in. It's a company called Rara, and uh, they are a student engagement platform. Um, what's really interesting about them is they take all the other stuff that you're doing and put it under one one umbrella. And um, I kind of like that. I'm I'm a, I'm a bit of a strategist myself, and I want to make sure that we're doing good things by our students. And uh, so they're going to be here along with some folks at the University of Michigan who are uh, using it on their campus, and we're going to learn more about that. Um, also, Butler University uh, in Indianapolis will be joining us down the road uh, to talk about their Institute for Well-Being, uh, which was uh, launched the Student Well-Being and Institutional Support Survey, otherwise known as SWISS. Um, this is the first national assessment that allows colleges and universities to capture student perceptions on how well their institution supports aspects of their well-being. Uh, so we will be talking more about that down the road. If you have a idea for an upcoming show or a guest, please uh, get in touch with me and uh, you can do that through uh, various modes of social media and my contact information uh, has been and will continue to be uh, part of the show so you can link up there. Uh, so, Dr. Freeman, uh, your essay, uh, Thriving in Unfamiliar Places, uh, it's excellent. I loved reading it. Um, I loved, uh, actually, I think one of the things about it is it goes, in my mind, it goes beyond the, the academic world. Um, it actually is, is quite applicable to, to many folks. Um, it has a message that has a spirit that is helpful uh, for so many people, and you've identified three keys uh, to thriving in unfamiliar places, and I want to get into these three keys. Um, they are knowing who you are, knowing whose you are, and knowing who you want to become. Uh, talk to me about these three keys, where they kind of, where it all kind of came down to. I'm a fan of threes. Okay. Like I always, when yeah. I would teach student students, uh, how to do public speaking, I would say, keep it to three. Okay. Right. One is not enough. It's a toss away Two, you end up with a compare and contrast. The listener goes, well, which one's better? Um, and then you three is kind of your good nugget. And when you get to four, you lost them. Okay. Right, so, right, right. so talk to me about how you came up with these three. And then I want to get into kind of the differentiation between the, between them. Yeah. So as you can tell, I probably, uh, got that from Toastmasters, right? So during the time, during the, during the, uh, the time that I came up with these three, I was uh, a leader at, at Toastmasters and I was asked to share about my experience 
my experience at at Idaho, there were people that were asking some of the same questions you were about um, how do you how did you navigate this? How are you navigating this environment? And it seems that you are thriving. And so I outlined I, as I thought about it, as I thought about it, those were the three things that stuck out to me. So knowing who I am, I, I know that I am a husband. I know I'm a scholar. I know that uh, I'm a child of God. I am, I'm a Christian. And so those things kind of ground me, knowing who, who I am. Then knowing whose I am, I'm Sydney Freeman Sr. and Cassandra Freeman's, their baby, right? And so one of the things that I've done is that at every institution that I've worked at, uh, every every environment that I've I've worked in, I've brought my parents there and introduced them to my boss. <laughs> I want them to know that I'm somebody's baby, right? Whether they whether they whether they make the I'm sorry. Go ahead. I I apologize, but one, tell me why that's so important to you because I I love that you have brought them into your space and people are now engaging with them about more than just a picture on your, on your desk. So talk to me about, about that more. Because I want them to know that somebody loves me. There's so many, there's so many black men that when we, when you think about black men, my age, right, we can, we can, you know, one of the, the major things that came out of the, out of um, the George Floyd uh, murder was that he was crying for his mother, mother. right? Mm -hmm. And so it points to that somebody loved him. Somebody cared about him. So knowing who I am, my, my Christian undergirding, knowing that I'm a black man culturally, knowing that I'm a husband, knowing that I'm a scholar, but then knowing that, that somebody somebody loves me unconditionally. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that I'm processing right now in a world that can throw celebrities away uh, quickly if they do something that they deem uncouth or, um, or just in professional life where, where institutions do not love us, right? Mm -hmm. And so I have to really, one of the things that I... I pay attention to is who really loves me, right? And so when I talk about uh, whose I am and 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 who I am, those things are core. And then where am I going? And right now it's an interesting time for me. So generally, so my my colleagues that are around my age are a little bit older. Um. None of them and, and none of them are at my rank at full professor. Right. right? And so it's, at, it's, it's, it's an interesting. So it's an interesting thing where um, the people that are at your rank, they're old. They're they're probably significantly older. And so uh, in some ways they're able to mentor you. But there's some nuances there that I'm still trying to work through. And so uh, if you were to ask me a couple of years ago, it would be clear. I want to be I want to be a president of a college and university now with with budgets being the way they are and kind of the 
a political environment we're in, I'm reassessing. Mm-hmm. I'm reassessing what do I want to be and what do I want to do next? Uh, but I do know uh, I do know that I want to continue to be a thought leader and being on platforms like this, sharing my story, uh, sharing insights is really important to me. And so I use that as a grounding right now until we figure out what if I want to go into administration next or do I want to uh, continue to be uh, a professor and become an endowed chair or a uh, distinguished professor. So those are the things that I think about when you ask about those three points. You know, when you, and one of the things I really found quite, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I think the thing that kind of like pushed me a little bit when I was reading your essay you know, I've seen other folks say you need to know who you are and like what it is that defines you and, and that sort of thing. And then uh, knowing where you're going to become and, and we've, you know, like that kind of goal setting, we've heard people talk about that, right? But I really love this idea of whose you are. And especially for folks who, um, you know, I'm going to be honest, the last couple of years have been tough on people in so many ways. And we may have lost perspective on whose we are, okay? Mm. Um, And um, knowing that there's people who love you unconditionally and put you first in whatever that first looks like, okay, um, is so important. And it actually, when I was reading your essay, I said, you know, I want to make sure my child sees that in me Mm. and that you know, it's not only, I have a 15 year old, so she's in this mode of, you know, she's in high school. Um, I, you know, people all say, oh, teenager, I have got the most <laughs> least teenager, teenager out there. Okay. Um, but I also know there's times where she makes a decision, like she just registered for her classes for her sophomore year and she came home and she had a plan, which completely blew me away, Dr. Freeman, because she's not a, she, she didn't usually get that excited about academics. Like Mm -hmm. it was more of like an obligation. (laughs) It wasn't actually something she was excited about. She came home and she says, okay, this is what I want to do. And I'm like, oh, okay. (laughs) And, um, you know, when I said to her, I said, you need to do whatever you want. I mean, I, I will tell you this right now, kiddo, I would not be taking honors math. I would not be taking honors science, but you do you. And I'm not going to make you do this. I want you to do this because you want to do this. Like, I mean, I've worked in, in higher ed for 30 years. I don't want her to be this bundle of anxiety thinking I need to do these things for my mother's approval. Right. Right. And, um, She's like, no, this is what I want to do. These are actually things that I'm excited about. I'm like, great, you know, get, have at it. But it meant so much more to me that she found her voice and she was able to do this. And, and it really spoke to me when I was reading your essay and I want her to know that I will always love her unconditionally and that no matter what she wants to do, it is, it was, it is her decision. And, you know, your idea at the at, in this idea of knowing who you want to become right now uh i just came back from the naspa conference with the student affairs folks mm-hmm. we've been talking a lot about the great resignation and what that looks like 
um, there's uh, all kinds of upheavals happening, whether it be financial upheavals, whether it be uh, uh, issues around um, where we want to be politically, whether we want to be in certain spaces. Um, you know, every day it's some other bomb in terms of the news, right? Um, and there's a lot of people considering what's their next step and knowing who you want to become changes, right? And it changes like, you know, what I wanted to become five years ago may be very different than what I want to become today. Um, and it doesn't mean I'm weak or it doesn't mean that I have, you know, changed in some you know, inner, like down to my core kind of way, like I've compromised who I am. That's not it. Right. Um, so there's a lot of opportunities out there, but people have experienced a lot of uneasiness and trauma over the last couple of years. Uh, we're hearing a lot of noise about the great resignation and people seeking to be better for themselves. Do you think that your three keys can help people as they are navigating through this time of uncertainty and potential risk taking, because people are tired of taking risks, I think. Yeah. Um, and so tell me more about what you think your three keys might be able to help people with. Yeah, in particular, the, the first two, and um, I, I think your perspective is so spot on as you, as you mentioned, mentioned your daughter. I think we're in a time, we're, we're in a time where people, um, uh, people don't are res resist uh, this idea of ownership. Someone, someone being uh, a husband, mm -hmm. uh, a husband, wife. I'm a partner, or those kinds, of, those kinds. Of, but at the core of it, right? Um, I think that if you're accountable to somebody, or so, or you're, or or they're accountable to you, or your love is there unconditionally. I think that's the core. I have a mother that I brought her to my office. I'm sitting in the former office of the president uh, at the University of Pennsylvania, right? Mm, right. My mother, my mother is an LPN, a, a licensed practi a practical uh, nurse. She has. She she knows that that University of Pennsylvania is is a is a good school, but she doesn't understand the Ivy League thing. But she loves me, right? And if I had to if I had to work at a convenience store tomorrow, she's going to love me. Mm -hmm. And I think I think if we're going to as we come out of the the pandemic, hopefully we're we're coming out of it. Um, but we still got to be careful. Um, but as hopefully we're coming out of it, I think that what we need to do is to draw closer to to our faith and draw closer closer to those who love us. I am spending, I am a, almost eliminating as much as possible, um, engaging in things and with people that are not nourishing that 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 they just take and not give right. And so I am, I, I am, I, and I'm a reciprocal person. So I love to give, mm -hmm. but if all you're doing is taking, mm -hmm. right, that is, that is not the kind of long lasting relationship I want to, 
uh, I want to engage in. And so hopefully those first two are there. But I would encourage people th that know, knowing where uh, where you're going, like you said, may change and it may be messy. So right now it, it's uh, I was it was clear where I was going. In in the in the past, uh, very clear. But COVID, life changes, and so you have to reassess. And uh, right now, engaging mentors and others related to um, ways uh, I can get on a track, a track where I want to go. Well, and I think that also one of the things that you know, your point about you know being with people who nourish you, not take all the time, that actually came into real, you know, three-dimensional, this is what it looks like during the most uh, dire parts of the pandemic. Um, the people you surrounded yourselves with who actually gave you strength and nourished you and provided you with support, emotional support, as well as just physical space to, to, uh, be yourself, um, that really changed, right? It's the people who we interacted with really changed uh, because we had to. We couldn't be around everybody, okay? And our activities were limited. And there were t there are times as uh, we live now in our endemic, as I like to say, people, we're now in an endemic, okay? Mm -hmm. We're in the tools phase of the endemic. We have our vaccinations, we have the masks when we need them, and we have tests when we when we need them as well. So we need to do these things, but you can live a full life. But there's some things about that, that I think, you know, when we were in this space where you didn't have to be in 18 places at once, uh, where you could actually pace your life, people kind of like that. At least some of us liked that and said, okay, how can I keep this? How can I keep this feeling of somewhat of uh, what I want in terms of my control. Um, but then society breaks it open, right? And the news of the day slams us in the face of, okay, you, you can't just be in this la-la land anymore. You've got to actually engage and you have to actually do things that might make you feel uncomfortable or make other people feel uncomfortable. And what does that look like now? And I know for myself that I was able to look at this and say, you know what, there's some things that I have spent a lot of time on in my life and have lost a lot of sleep over that I now know those are not priorities. Mm -hmm. And I need to focus on these things that are priorities and these people that are of the highest priority. Um, and, and I think in academia, we can actually put people first in ways that the academic life doesn't always prioritize that. And what I mean by that is for our folks who are um, rising members of our community, whether it be our students or our colleagues, and say to them, they are important and they are a priority um, and bring them into our own academic kind of space. I think we need to do more of that. I think we need to nurture more. What are your thoughts on nurturing the future? What are your thoughts on, on actually engaging the future in a way that tells them they're a priority? I think it's really important. I think you said something that really resonated with me. I actually thrived uh, when the when the pandemic first hit, mm -hmm. 
So I actually was able to um, uh, really focus in on areas in which uh, I wanted to grow and things like that. It gave it gave pause. And so I think that there needs to I think administrators need to have a balance with this. I think there's some people that need to be in person and need to engage and want to engage and things like that. And there's others, uh, and I'm an extrovert, and I was thriving, uh, thriving, kind of just staying home, doing my thing, and I'm not really wanting to step out, right? Uh, even now, I'm, I'm doing it, but it's not necessarily what I would like to do. So I think there needs to be balance there, listening, uh, listening to uh, to your to your your faculty and staff and even your students um, is really important. I think ultimately, when you put people first, I think you you are are, are on the right track to doing well. Um, I, I know people are balancing those those ideals with with pressures from boards of trustees and things like that, but. Uh, I think it's really important to listen to your faculty, staff, administrators, and students. Um, one of the things I want to kind of close out as we're kind of finishing up today is you brought up your knowing whose you are, um, and you specifically talked about your parents. I I've been thinking about uh, the legacy that educators have with the students that come through their space, okay? Mm -hmm. And one of the things about your who's uh, that inspired me was thinking about who's uh, are my folks who came through my space who are now educators too. Mm -hmm. And almost that educational lineage that we create. Um, I wonder if there's space for that. I wonder if there's something that we need to be doing more intentionally as educators to kind of create our educational lineage. What, what are your thoughts on that? I think it's really important. I, I think that in the past, there was a focus just on my doctoral students or the students that come that were assigned to me or the students that I identified. Mm -hmm. uh, what, I, what I found to be um, even more or just as important, let me say it that way, is to mentor st students that are not necessarily at my institution. And so uh, students like Caleb uh, Briscoe, who's now at the at um, Mississippi State uh, University, is one that I've really uh, poured into uh, is now assistant professor there in the area of higher ed and, and student affairs. Um, I think the intentionality of that uh, is really important. So uh, I am one who tries to. Uh, mentor as much as I, I can, particularly uh, particularly students of color uh, and, and more particu particularity, Black students, uh, is really important to me. The, the idea of uh, the legacy that you want to leave, okay, it changes. I mean, you've already said that, you know, on the, in the scale of uh, how 
of age. Okay. And age to me is relative. I'm 55 years old and I don't, I know I don't come off as a 55 year old. Sometimes I'm a creaky person, but I know that, <laughs> that overall people say you're what? And I said, it, it is relative. You can be a very young old person or you can be an older, young person. Okay. And so, uh, you know, it's really about who you are when you're thinking about the legacy that you have already started to build, um, at your institution and beyond that, uh, going to what you just said is that you see maybe your, your, your footprint or your imprint on the field goes beyond the institutional grounds, um, in, in Idaho. What is the what is it that you want people to say? You know, when you're doing your your retirement tour, and someone is saying, "Okay, this is the legacy that Dr. Freeman left." What are you hoping uh, is part of the spirit of that legacy? Yeah. So, I have come up with a new model. It's the model of Black transformation, and it starts with decolonization, and it ends with sovereignty. And so the idea of, of ways in which you engage in abolition and revolution and liberation, right? And so how do we empower the Black community is, is really important. Uh, so I would like my legacy to be one that... Um, that it showed that I, I love my people. And so that is a core part of what I do. Now that's not in the, that's not to the exclusion of others. Mm -hmm. uh, however, uh, however, I am intentional about uh, supporting, supporting um, black folk given, given how they're treated uh, in this country. And one of the things that I am thinking about, I was thinking about it this morning, is how do you navigate, how do you navigate these predominantly white environments which uh, try to pigeonhole you? So, so while my expertise is in higher education leadership, uh, generally speaking, and faculty success, right? That's my scholarship. Mm -hmm. um, when you advocate for minoritized individuals and you're a person of color, you're often, they want to put you in that box and therefore uh, don't acknowledge your skills in other areas and expertise in other areas. And so um, I'm, I'm wanting to be intentional about while focusing in on issues pertaining to black people that I'm also acknowledged for uh, the other the other contributions that I have more broadly. That's great. Um, do you think that Sidney Freeman would be the activist would be proud of Dr. Sidney Freeman? They're one in the same. <laughs> They're one in the same. Dr. Freeman, this has been a pleasure and I appreciate you being here and uh, I hope you come back someday and talk about, give us updates as to what's happening in uh, your world and your scholarship. If there's, uh, if people want to be in touch with you, what's the best way to connect? Uh, so Twitter. Uh, so my account is Dr. D-O-C-T-O-R and uh, Dr. S. F J 
uh, on Twitter. Uh, you can go to my YouTube channel. It's uh, Sydney Freeman Jr. Uh, on Facebook, it's my professional pr page is Sydney Freeman Jr. And my website is Dr. Sydney Freeman Jr. dot com. Again, it's Dr. Sydney Freeman Jr. dot com. And thank you so much, Dr. DeVoe, for this opportunity to share on your platform. Thank you so much. And if you want to be in touch with me, my information is scrolling across the, the screen right now. Please subscribe to my Substack, and you will have not only uh, this recorded uh, replay put into your uh, mailbox, uh, but you will have all of Dr. Freeman's information and uh, all of mine. And so it is great to have you here. It is great to be part of your week. Uh, please be back with us next week for our April Think Tip. Thank you think tank edition and uh, have a wonderful week, everybody. And uh, go learn something. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you.